Well, this evening we begin looking at the book of Leviticus. It was reportedly said by a third century church scholar. I didn't read the quote directly, so I'm not sure exactly who it was that said this. But a third century church scholar supposedly said that reading Leviticus was like having to eat unfit food. But, on the other hand, it was said that in traditional Judaism, the rabbis wanted a five-year-old child to begin their study of Scripture with the book of Leviticus. Now, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that our five-year-olds in the church begin their studies of Scripture in the book of Leviticus, but it is certainly my hope that as we consider Leviticus in this series, that we will learn that we ought not to think of this book as similar to having to eat unfit food. Now, within the, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Leviticus is third, middle of the five. More specifically, Leviticus is placed between Exodus and Numbers. Chronologically, if you look at the history of the nation of Israel as they went out from Egypt and uh, their period before they begin those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, chronologically from Exodus chapter 19 to Numbers chapter 10, Israel was at Mount Sinai. That period is delineated as being the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. We're told that, Exodus 19 verse 1. To, on the other end, the other bookend of that period, Numbers 10, 11 is the second year in the second month on the 20th of the month. So they're there at Mount Sinai for about, about 11 months or so, it appears. Now, what we're, what we're told in Exodus chapter 40, verse 2, right at the end of the book of Exodus, is that the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was erected on the first day of the first month of the year. And seemingly that was the day upon which the, the cloud of the Lord's glory descended upon the tabernacle and filled the tabernacle as a token of God's presence with his people. And that day would be roughly 50 days prior to when they were told to set out and depart from Mount Sinai, as described in Numbers chapter 10. So you have the first of the first month, the glory of the Lord coming down, and then the 20th of the second month, Israel is told to move on. Now the instructions given in Leviticus are said to have been given at Mount Sinai. There are multiple references in the book of Leviticus that the instructions that are given were given at Mount Sinai. You see this chapter 7, verse 38, chapter 25, verse 1, 26, verse 46, 27, verse 34. And the book of Leviticus begins in chapter 1, verse 1, with the Lord speaking to Moses from the tent of meeting. And so all things considered, it seems that the Lord spoke these commandments that we have in the book of Leviticus within those 50 days from first of the first month when the glory of the Lord descended on the tabernacle to the 20th of the second month when Israel was said to have departed. And indeed, that, narrow could, that window could potentially even be narrower than that if we assume that chronologically all of the instructions of Leviticus came before the first instructions of the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 1 uh, begins on the first of the second month and the second year after Israel came out of Egypt. And so it's 
possible and I would say likely that all of the book of Leviticus is given during that first month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. In other words, it all happens between Exodus chapter 40 and Numbers chapter 1. That seems to make reasonable sense. Now, it's been, it's been argued, and I find the argument convincing, that the theme and theology of the Pentateuch, and therefore the, the narrative arc of those first five books of the Bible, if you will, is concerned with the Lord opening a way for humanity to dwell in the divine presence. Mankind, man and woman, male and female, had been created to dwell with God in God's presence in the Garden of Eden. We read about that in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Adam and Eve quickly brought an end to that fellowship by their sin. Genesis chapter 3. And then from Genesis 3 onwards, the goal and the purpose of God has been to open a way for humanity to dwell in the divine presence. They were kicked out of the garden because of sin. Even when they were kicked out, there was a promise of the Redeemer who would come, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And in Exodus chapter 40, as we've already said, the, the cloud, the, the glory of the Lord descended upon the tabernacle. The tabernacle is supposed to be in the center of the camp. And so now you have a token of God's presence there in the center of the camp. This is God dwelling in the midst of his people. And so it should come then as no surprise that after we find about God dwelling in the midst of his people, that then comes the book of Leviticus, in which God speaks to his people as to how they are to approach him, how they are to worship him, and how they are to conduct themselves in his presence. Michael Morales put it like this. He says, The first half of the book deals primarily with the approach to God through blood, while the second half is taken up with life in God's presence through increasing holiness, the overall goal being fellowship with God. Once more, the aim of Levitical legislation must be kept in view. Whether the laws pertain to sacrifice, to distinguishing between clean and unclean, or to ethical and moral behavior, the aim of the laws is fellowship and union with the living God. For this reason, though Leviticus is often characterized thematically by holiness, it is preferable to discern holiness not as an end in itself, but rather as a means to an end, which is the real theme, the abundant life of joy with God in the house of God. And so in other words, the, the holiness that is prescribed in the book of Leviticus is good because ultimately this is the way in which we can dwell in the presence of God. God is holy, and he calls his people, therefore, to be holy, that we may dwell with him in abundant life and joy with God in his house. And so, in short, the book of Leviticus is about how to enter and live in the presence of God. That's important, ultimately important. Now, obviously, much of what we find here in Leviticus was, was temporary and typological. It is, in large part, that which we might refer to as ceremonial law which was ultimately pointing ahead to Christ and was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The fact that it was temporary in its nature, however, does not mean that it is useless 
to learn of it. On the contrary, the better we understand the truths that are contained here in the book of Leviticus, the more fully we will understand the work of Christ on our behalf, the way in which he brings us into the presence of God, and also the holiness to which he calls us. We have the book of Leviticus reiterated in 1 Peter, be holy for I am holy. And ultimately, this holiness is what is to characterize us as we live in the presence of God. God himself is holy. He calls us to be holy so that we may dwell with him. And so with that, let's, let's turn and let's look at Leviticus chapter 1. If you're using the, uh, the Red Pew Bibles, Leviticus, uh, the book of Leviticus begins on page 81. So let's read through chapter 1 of the book of Leviticus. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says... Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and suet over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall slay it on the side of the altar, northward before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle its blood around the altar. He shall then cut it into its pieces and uh, with its head and its suet, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire that is on the altar." The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and offer it up in smoke on the altar, and its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall also take away its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. Then he shall tear it by its wings, but shall not sever it. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, on the wood, which is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord." Leviticus chapter 1 is obviously dealing with the subject of burnt offerings. It has been said that 
these offerings here, along with the the grain offerings of chapter 2 and the peace offerings of chapter 3, taken together and in order, present an ideal worship scenario. The reason is that each one of these is a voluntary offering and is an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. You find this as a description of the offerings given in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And I think it is noteworthy that we find these three sacrifices, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering, listed together as happening at the time of the dedication of the temple under Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 64. In that case, the focus seems to have been on worshiping the Lord and on making an offering to Him in praise. Now, as can be seen in the text, there is no reference to any specific sin having been committed by the worshiper bringing the burnt offering. The closest that we get is in verse 4 when it is said that the offering makes an atonement for the worshiper. The word that is translated as atonement bears the the meaning of to, to cover over or to pacify, to make propitiation. These burnt offerings, therefore, could be offered in a voluntary setting, as in the dedication of the temple with no specific reference to sin, or they could be offered for sins in general. Now, as you progress on through uh, Leviticus chapter 4, chapter 5, you have sin offerings and guilt offerings, and Lord willing, uh, we'll get there and, and discuss those. But these, these burnt offerings can be offered for, for sins in general, but for particular sins, there, there seem to have been special and particular sacrifices Or these can be offered commonly by way of thanksgiving and worship. And so just to give uh, give another example of of worship in which a a burnt offering is is described or or discussed, in addition to 1 Kings uh, 8.64, I think Psalm 51, 18 and 19 gives us an example of burnt offerings and the, the situation that David is envisioning in Psalm 51, 18, and 19 is, I think, this, this general and voluntary sense without reference to sin. Now, obviously, in Psalm 51, David is confessing his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and acknowledging his sinfulness from birth. But then at the end of the, the psalm, Psalm 51, verses 18 and 19, he is asking for God to, to bless his people And he says that then there will be sacrifices that you delight in. He says, by your good favor, uh, do good to Zion. Build up the walls in Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. So in other words, David doesn't seem to be talking about burnt offerings in reference to his sin. He's talking about God bless your people and then we can can offer these sacrifices in, in worship and in praise to you. But then on the other hand, we, we also see David offering burnt offerings in a case where he committed a specific sin, namely the census of Israel. If you remember, he took that sinful census in 2 Samuel chapter 24, and at the end of 2 Samuel 24, this is what we find, 2 Samuel 24, verses 24 and 25. However, the king said to Arana, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Arana had, had offered to give David the, uh, the wood and, and the bulls to, to make an offering to the Lord. And David says, David says, no, 
Uh, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offering to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. Now, in light of what happened there in 2 Samuel 24, it seems to validate the assertion of, of one commentator commenting on Leviticus chapter 1, who said that the purpose of the burnt offering was to honor God and to attract his attention, to, to get him to, to look and to, to see. And so given all of that, let the point be clear that the burnt offering was very important. This is what is listed first. This is what is first commanded after the glory of God comes upon the tabernacle. And the burnt offering was also very flexible. It could be offered for, for sin in general. It could be offered in a moment of crisis, but it need not be so. It could also be offered as a general expression of praise and worship. Now let's notice a few other things here in chapter 1 as well. These burnt offerings so described could come from three general sources. They could come from the herd, from the flock, or from birds. The procedure for offering a burnt offering from the herd is described in verses 2 through 9, or more specifically verses 3 through 9. And this is the sacrifice of a bull. Verses 10 through 13, you have the procedure for a burnt offering from the herd, a male sheep or a male goat. Verses 14 through 17, the description of a burnt offering of birds, either pigeons or turtle doves. And though it is not explicit here in chapter 1, what we find elsewhere in the book of Leviticus gives evidence that these different options for the burnt offering from, from the herd, from the flock, or from birds were based upon the wealth or the poverty of the worshiper. And so when dealing with the, the guilt offering in chapter 5, the instruction given, chapter 5, verse 7, is this, that if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord his guilt offering for that in which he has sinned, two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And you see something similar in regard to the law for purification after childbirth in chapter 12, verse 8. In the law given in Leviticus chapter 14 in regard to the cleansing of a leper, it is said in chapter 14, verse 31, he shall offer what he can afford, the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering with the grain offering. This principle seems to, to be in play in, in many cases, though perhaps not in every case, but in, in many cases there seems to have been a certain flexibility dependent on the, the financial situation of the worshiper. And I think this, this principle may help us to understand David's response in 2 Samuel chapter 24. Arana the Jebusite offers to give David the land, to give him the, the bulls for the sacrifice, and David says, whoa, 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 no. I'm not going to offer these things to the Lord my God that didn't cost me anything. It's like uh, dropping an offering into the plate when it's not your offering, right? Jim, Jim says, hey, will you put this in the offering? I'm like, cool, that counts for my tithe, right? This is, David recognizes this, this is not the way this is to be done. He, he's the king. He has means. He needs to pay for, for these bulls in order to offer the sacrifice. And... Thus, we're reminded here that our Lord receives worship equally from the rich and from the poor who come in sincerity. The rich man who brought a bull or the middle class man who brought a lamb or the poor man who brought a pigeon 
were all equally accepted by the Lord. The Lord is not a respecter of persons. The rich man was not refused because he was rich, nor was his expensive offering, uh, nor did that expensive offering make him better in the sight of the Lord. And likewise, the poor man was not refused because his gift was not as expensive as the rich man. It doesn't cost as much to bring a couple of pigeons as it does to bring a bull. And nor was the poor man better in the sight of the Lord simply because of his poverty. In every case, in the case of the one who offers the bull, in the case of the one who offers the sheep or the goat, the case of the one who offers the pigeon or the turtle dove, in every case the offering is described as an offering by fire that is a soothing aroma to the Lord. And though you and I have obviously nothing to do with burnt offerings, right? We don't, we don't do burnt offerings. These things were ultimately pointing ahead to Christ. Though we have nothing to do with that, nevertheless, the principle involved here still does remind us that in our service and in our offerings to the Lord, we ought to do what we can and to do so in full confidence that it will be accepted by the Lord. And Paul reminds us of this in 2 Corinthians 8.12 when he says that if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Now, maybe sometimes you feel that you don't have much to contribute to the Lord's work and you feel restricted. Maybe you feel restricted in regard to money or in regard to time or in regard to giftedness. And indeed, all of us are restricted by those things in some degree. Not all of us, none of us have infinite money. None of us have infinite time. None of us have infinite giftedness. We all have our limitations in certain ways. We're restricted. The point is, don't let whatever you lack hinder you or discourage you in your service to the Lord in the least. Give what you can. Put in your two mites, so to speak. If the readiness is present, the service to the Lord is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Now let's notice also here from chapter 1 what we can about the offerer, the worshiper, and his relationship to the offering that he brought. It is specifically stated in the cases of the offering from the herd and from the flock that the offering was to be a male without blemish, that the one bringing the sacrifice was to slay the animal. The worshiper himself was to slay the animal. It seems like you have uh, kind of some, some alternating responsibilities in the, in the flow of the text between the worshiper and the priest. And so the worshiper is to slay the animal, most likely done by cutting the throat. After this, the priest sprinkles the blood. The one offering the sacrifice was to cut the offering into pieces and to skin it. The priests were to put fire on the altar and arrange the wood and arrange the pieces of the sacrifice on the fire after the entrails and the legs were washed with water. Then the entire animal, minus the skin, was to go up in fire on the altar. According to chapter 7, verse 8, the skin from the burnt offering was to belong to the priest. The washing of the entrails serves as a reminder that uncleanness and filth have no place in the presence of the Lord. And it is specifically stated there in verse 4 that the, the worshiper is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. And the verb there means to, to lean, which implies dependence. When you lean on something, 
You're resting your weight upon it. And here in this case, the worshiper places his hand on the sacrifice, signifying, as it were, that he is transferring his sin to the animal that is ready to be sacrificed, and also that he deserves what is about to come to that animal that is sacrificed, and that by the mercy of God, he will be accepted. Walter Kaiser expressed it this way. He said, when the hands are laid on the victim, the one making the offering has to take it by faith that the victim will, in God's merciful provision, symbolically express what the offerer deserves, but is now excused by virtue of another who substitutes life for life. There was an exchange going on here. There was a life that was being taken. And thus it is that this burnt offering is a, is a type or a, a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Leviticus chapter 1 points us ahead to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf when he died on the cross for sinners. And it also points us ahead to the acceptance that is ours in him. Christ himself is a male without blemish. He was sinless. Peter says, 1 Peter 1.19, that we have been redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. And the writer to the Hebrews contrasts Jesus Christ with these offerings and shows how Jesus fulfills them in this way when he says in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 4, he says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he, speaking of Jesus, when Jesus comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offering and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The blood of these sacrifices here that was sprinkled around the altar by the priests could not take away sins. Couldn't, couldn't do it. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away our sins. But, nevertheless, these sacrifices were instituted for a season until the time of Reformation, until the fullness of time when Christ would come and die once for all. And so, friend, tonight, place your hand on the head of Jesus Christ. Are you leaning on Him for your acceptance with God? Are you trusting in Him and coming to God through Him, turning away from your sins, and relying on Jesus? Or are you trying to come to God in some other way? All other ways are doomed to failure because there is only one way to come, and that is through Jesus. And so tonight, rest your full weight on him and know that in Jesus, sins are completely atoned for. If these sacrifices here could be described as a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, then how much more pleasing and acceptable to the Father was the sacrifice of his only begotten Son? We have full proof 
of the Father's acceptance in that he raised up Jesus from the dead, testifying that the sacrifice was pleasing and acceptable and complete in his sight. And so if you're a Christian here this evening, let this be of strong encouragement to you. Just as the the worshiper here was identified with the offering and received atonement for his sins, was brought into the favor of God by means of a sacrifice that in and of itself was not effectual. It couldn't actually take away sins. Rather, that sacrifice was simply pointing ahead to Christ. If such a worshiper could be accepted by God on these terms, then how much more those who have identified themselves with the sacrifice of Christ. They had just the the shadows, what was pointing ahead to the reality, who is Jesus. We know the reality. We know Christ. How much more can we be confident of our acceptance with the Father through Christ? Christ has taken our place. He took upon himself what we deserved for our sins. He's made atonement for us. And again, why did he do this? So that we might live in the presence of God. So that we might be reconciled to God. We had been the enemies of God in our sins. But now those who come to God through faith are reconciled to him. And we even now begin to dwell with him. And we will continue to do so for all of eternity. And if you're here tonight and and you're not a Christian, I, I urge you to think about these things. Because as it is, in our sins, we are, we're separated from God. We are outside of the presence of God. And the only way into the presence of God is through a sacrifice. And that is, that is shown here in Leviticus chapter 1. That's ultimately pointing ahead to Jesus. The only way to God is to go through a sacrifice. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Ultimately, the blood that had to be shed was the blood of Jesus. But praise be to God that... God's great plan of salvation that was foreshadowed here was ultimately brought to fulfillment in Christ. That sinners can be received through Jesus Christ. That's good news. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we read in Leviticus things that often seem very strange and very far removed from us. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to to understand at least in some measure what is taught here and what is foreshadowed here concerning your Son. And, Lord, we we praise you that though we, uh, by nature, are sinful and separated from you, yet there is a way by which we might be brought into your presence, by which we might be forgiven of every evil thing that we have done. Father, we thank you for for Jesus, for his sinless life, that he is a male without blemish, that he went to the cross for us, that he bore our sins in his body, and that he rose again from the grave three days later. Lord, we, uh, we give thanks to you, O oh Father, for, uh, for Christ and his coming and the salvation that is ours in him. pray that you would help us to live holy lives, lives that are set apart to you as a result of this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.